Uh, one of the things I get really excited about and quite passionate about, actually, is when churches uh, take time to say, we want to dig into text. We want to know what this word says. Uh, and I am, that really pleases me to no end, and I love to participate in those kinds of things. And so I thank you for putting together the series. I thank you for inviting me. Uh, thanks for letting me take Colossians, which is, you and I share this, uh, as I understand um, it is, well, I say this about most New Testament books, but it really is one of, if not my favorite, in the New Testament. So I look forward to spending some time with you. In fact, I'll give you the cliff note version of Colossians. It's right there. Right? Because the letter of Colossians that Paul writes uh, to those in Colossae, people that he had not met personally, he did not found that church there. He knows them through Epaphras, who did found the church there. When he writes to them and he is dealing with issue or issues that they are having to, to, to go through as a growing church and going through growing pains and trying to decide, hey, how does this work? What does this look like? The number one thing that Paul focused on was the Christ, was Jesus Christ and his action. It's what God has done for them through the Christ. And so there you have it. If you don't get anything else tonight, just know that, when, that the letter of Colossians is about the Christ. Uh, let's begin, if you would, would allow me to pray. I, I like to immerse ourselves in prayer uh, before we get into the Word of, of God. God, you are honorable. You are the one that we put first in our lives. We claim you as our God, and we acknowledge that you are the one who is our king. You are the one who leads us. We rely on you for guidance through life. Father, you know that we'd struggle, just like these early readers, the Colossians, who received this letter from Paul. We struggle with um, difficulties in life. We struggle with knowing exactly which way is, is the right way. We, we are presented with things in life that really look great. They look fantastic and real. And we have trouble sometimes recognizing um, what isn't real. And so we're thankful for letters like this that we're looking at tonight. And we're thankful for how you guide us through teachers and mentors in the faith to help us to see and to know what is real, to see and to know that it is Jesus Christ who is real, the one who is substance and not mere shadow. That you've given us Jesus to follow and his example to live by. And so our prayer tonight as we're looking at this letter together that you, would, that you would show us Jesus even more for who he is and that you would show us those worldly things for what they are, fake. Give us strength and give us guidance in life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to get to our text tonight by beginning with just a little kind of story about my, my childhood. I don't have a ton of memories from my childhood for whatever reason. Um, I blame that on my older brother. Um, he used to like to um, be nice to me, right? So I think those of you who have had older brothers, you know that that means... Sometimes you get pounded. Um, now, he was a great older brother, and I, if you, I hope we're not recording this, and so if we are, I better say he was a great older brother um, and actually a great mentor, and he was, he was someone who pushed me and encouraged me to do what I do today. 
Now, his way of pushing and encouraging usually went something like this. Yeah, you won't be able to do that. Because he knew that I was one of these kind of stubborn types, right? I'm like, oh, yeah, let me show you. <laughs> so that's what we, we did. So he takes credit for my Ph.D. for some reason. I, I don't know. But uh, I love my brother dearly. But, man, I'll tell you, we had our moments. But I remember a time in life, and I think most of us have had the experience of traveling out west, right? Now, some people think this is the west. I'm not sure. But you know what I mean? Going to, like, Colorado and Wyoming and Idaho and seeing all the great sights there are to see there, right? you got to get out of Oklahoma every now and then to see actual mountains, I hope that's not offensive to anybody, but I think we all know that's true, right? And we made one of those family trips when I was young. I was probably about 10 years old when we did this. And this was in the day when traveling was pretty easy. There were no seatbelt laws. Uh, as a matter of fact, we drove in my dad's pickup truck. It was a, 19, it was a late 70s model uh, Ford pickup truck. He had put a, a bed in the back, uh, in the bed of the pickup, an actual bed back there, and then put a, a top or a cap on the top of this thing, right, and bolted it down. And I rode most of the way back there. Can you believe that? In fact, I remember sitting, looking over the tailgate, watching the hitch, watching the road pass underneath the hitch uh, to the uh, little camper trailer we were pulling behind us. Yeah, you can't do that anymore, right? It was a great trip, but one of the things that I remember about this trip was one of the first nights we stopped in one of these touristy little towns. And, of course, you know these places. They've got restaurants everywhere. And so we ate at one of the restaurants. And then they had these little shops, right? And I remember going through these little shops, kind of perusing through them. And my mom, you know, she would be looking at all kinds of little things like moccasins and refrigerator magnets and bumper stickers and these kinds of things. But, man, I saw something catch my eye as soon as we went into this one store. And it was sparkly. It glistened. And I remember thinking to myself, i got to have that. Now, the, the funny thing about this is, funny, odd about this, is that it, these sparkly things were in a box, and they were sort of towards the front of the store, kind of down in a corner, not easy to see, but a little 10-year-old boy who was about this tall, that's about the right level. I think it was probably really good marketing ploy or something. So here I go, straight to that box of, of sparkly things, and I pick these things up, and I, I'm looking at them and think, oh, these are, these are some fine rocks. In fact, I'm pretty sure this is gold, right? And I'm, I'm going through this box. There's just a pile of these things, and I'm fumbling through each one. I'm dropping a few, picking them up. And I, I, I go through them, and I'm feeling each one until I find the one that just feels just right in my hand. And I go to my mom, and I, and I kind of tug on her arm, and I say, Mom, I got to have this. Now, I was 10, and it was a sparkly rock. You probably know where I'm going with this. But I remember saying to my mom, this is the cheapest gold nugget that I've, you know, this has got to be it. I think it was a 50 cents. And I'm thinking, ah, I've got to have this. And she said, you really want that? I said, yes, please. I want it so badly, I said, please. And so she smiled and nodded and said, all right. So we're checking out the counter, right, and the, the cashier's kind of going through. I think the bumper sticker that we stuck on the back of the 1978 Ford. Uh, might have said, like, I love wall drug or something. I don't know, someplace in South Dakota or Wyoming or someplace. Um, I think my little sister got a pair of moccasins, you know, because we got to have those. And then there was my rock. Just plopped it right up there on the counter. And the guy looks at me, and he says, is this your pyrite? 
I said, I don't know what pyrite is, but that's my gold. Right? And he smiled, and he looked at my mom, and they were like, yeah, okay. And so we go out of the store, and I, I'd never heard this word before. And I look at my mom, and I say, what is pyrite? She says, well, it's, it's, it's fool's gold. What are you talking about, Mom? <laughs> fool's gold. It looks like real gold, but it's really not real. And that sort of hit me like an atomic bomb, right? I'm thinking, wait a minute. This is real. I'm holding this thing in my hand. It exists. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of heavy. It's got to be the real thing. No, it's, it's called pyrite. So we go, spend the night in the Motel 6 or whatever it was that night, and then we moseyed on down the road the next day, and we hit another one of these little towns and stopped for a break, and we're doing the same thing, kind of hitting the shops. And in one of the shops, I found a book about rocks and rock collecting. And so I had to have it, of course. So we put it on the counter, checked it out, and as soon as my mom handed the person the cash, I popped that book open, and I hit the index, and I'm looking... It's got to begin with a letter P, right? So I'm looking through there. found something that looked like pyrite. Okay, it's on this page. I'll look it up. Hmm. Here's what it said, if I can read. This is another thing that happens to you over time, right? Pyrite glistens. Gold shines. My rock glistened. So I kept reading. Nah, that's got to be wrong. Kept reading. Pyrite has sharp edges. Gold has smoother edges. My rock had sharp edges. That's strike two. Test number three. Pyrite will scratch copper. Gold will not. Well, I didn't have any copper around me to test that out, but I was able to prove empirically that pyrite does scratch little sisters. No, I didn't try it on my older brother. It turns out that my mom was right, which has been proven to be true most of my life, actually. It was a fake. I felt like I had been fooled, hence the name Fool's Gold, right? I thought I had something valuable. I thought I had something that might help me buy, I don't know, a new bicycle. That might help me to buy one of those fancy Sony Walkmans that were back in the day. I mean, this one I was looking at was about like this big, and you hooked it on your belt. It was yellow. It was even waterproof. You slid the cassette tape down in there. Those things, I I tell that. Some people are going, yeah, I know what that is. And then there's some back there going, oh, I'm not sure what that is. Man, I really thought I was, I thought I had something valuable. But it turns out it was worthless. It was really good for nothing. It could not benefit me in any way, except it looked really pretty. This, my friends, is the exact kind of message that Paul writes about to the Colossians. He does not want the Colossian believers to believe or to be fooled by a form of faith that is, in the end, unable to empower a person to live a life that brings honor to God. Did you catch that? 
Paul wrote to the Colossians because he had heard from Epaphras they're struggling with some things. There's a threat of them being distracted by something that looks really good. It's shiny, but it's got sharp edges. It looks like it might be valuable and worth and and even powerful enough to, to accomplish something for them. But in the end, it's nothing. And so he wants to write to them, don't buy into those things because even though they look good, even though they look shiny, they're not going to help you live a life that honors God. In a manner of speaking, Paul writes to the Colossians to teach them how to tell the difference between real gold and fool's gold. To tell what truly liberates and what empowers believers to live in a manner that brings honor to the Lord. That's what the message of Colossians is about. And that is the real thing. Let's look at this uh, text together. We can't read the whole letter tonight. I'm a little sad by that, but I understand I only had about three hours with you, so you probably have heard that before, I'm guessing. How do you tell the difference between real gold and fool's gold? Well, you need somebody to tell you what the, the, the fake stuff looks like and what the real stuff looks like so that you can do a comparison, right? That's what Paul is going to do. Let's jump into this letter in chapter 1. I would, I would like to start actually in verse 9, if we could. So Paul has kind of finished up the, uh, the introductions, if, as you might put it, in uh, verses 1 through 8. And he sort of, even in that section of verses, is going to start kind of tipping his hand a little bit to show people this is where I'm going to be heading in this letter. And then he starts to dive into this in verse 9. And I want us to read this uh, carefully, and I want you to pay attention to how he's using his language here. He says, For this reason, we from from the day which we heard have not stopped praying and asking on your behalf that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all or in full wisdom and in spiritual understanding or spiritual intelligence. I want, we are praying that you would have the knowledge of God poured into you by God And we want you to have this in full wisdom and understanding, intelligence. And not just any intelligence or understanding, but a spiritual intelligence, which tells me that this is not just the ordinary run-of-the-mill stuff. This is something that is coming from God. This is something that is coming to them through the Spirit of God. Verse 10. Why does he want them to be filled with this knowledge of God's will this wisdom and this spiritual understanding. Verse 10, that you might walk worthily of the Lord. And he uses this kind of figure of speech, and I gloss this in English just a little bit differently. Your versions might say, for everything that is good. And he uses kind of a, a spatial language here, he, and he uses language of walking, right? So he says, in order that you would walk worthily, worthily of the Lord toward everything that is good. In every good deed, bearing uh, fruit, and growing in the knowledge of God. Being enabled with every kind of ability in accordance with His glorious might, His honorable deeds and power, not your own. 
And this is so that you will have, and it will be towards or for, full endurance and patience. You'll be giving thanks with joy to the Father who has done a couple of things for you. He has qualified you for a share of the, of the inheritance of the saints. That implies that they weren't previously qualified for that inheritance. They were outside of the family, so to speak, and so God qualifies them by bringing them into the family. So now they're qualified for a share of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Verse 13, he rescued us out of the authority, out from under the authority of darkness, and he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. That's an amazing text to me. And it's really not a surprise that he begins the letter there, and it's the rest of the letter really unfolds, and, and he, he touches back on this everywhere he goes in the letter. For Paul, what's really important is that these people have some kind of knowledge or understanding. Now, he's not suggesting that they need to go off to school and get a Ph.D. or a master's degree or a bachelor's degree or whatever. He's, he's saying to them they need to have an understanding of the will of God. How do they get that? Earlier, he refers to the gospel message that they had received from Epaphras. He calls that the truth that was brought to them by Epaphras. That, for Paul, is the education that they need. That, for Paul, is the education they need to always keep before them as they're encountering different value positions and ideologies that smack them in the face every day that they're living life. Even the ones that look really good. Because it's really in that understanding of the will of God, the purpose of God, that they'll be able to make the comparison and say, well, that, this one's true, that one, not so much. Right? But it's not finished there. He wants you to walk worthily of the Lord towards everything that pleases God, bearing fruit in every good deed, being grown in the knowledge of, and understanding of God, being enabled with every ability in accordance with God's honorable uh, might and deeds for full endurance and patience, to bring Him glory. And the reason is, like I said, He wants them to know what's true. But what is true? What is it that's the anchor? Where does He go next? He gives this wonderful piece of poetry about the Christ. He is the image, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Verse 19, pay very special attention to this language. For in him, that is in the Christ, all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. The fullness. Remember that language. And it's through him that God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. This is really a, a fantastic uh, bit of poetry that he has in here about the Christ, but I don't want us to miss what he's doing with it by its beauty. 
I even want us to be careful not to get so caught up in all of the, the really awesome stuff he says about the Christ that we miss what he's doing with it as the letter unfolds here because there's something very special going on here. Earlier he said, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom. This poem about the Christ, this hymn, song, if you will, about the Christ, has overtones, as part of it, of Jewish wisdom tradition. The difference is is that he is speaking about the Christ and not about wisdom in general. Just take a minute and turn in your Bibles to Proverbs. If you want to know about wisdom tradition, Proverbs is a great place in our Bibles to go to look at that. Uh, Some of the Psalms even fit into that, Ecclesiastes and others. Uh, There are also a host of other texts outside of our Bible that that have this sort of Jewish wisdom tradition about them. And if you look at Proverbs 8 for just, as just an example, you get kind of an idea of how wisdom gets personified. It's, it's, the very knowledge and under, it's the very knowledge of God that gets personified, the very wisdom of God that gets kind of treated as if it's a person. And that's what's going on here, but then it gets applied to the Christ. So listen just to a little bit of Proverbs 8. Does not wisdom call and does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she, that is wisdom, cries out, To you, O people, I call, and my cry is to all that live. O simple ones, learn prudence. Acquire intelligence. You who lack it. Verse 6, hear, or listen, for I will speak of noble things. And my lip, from my lips will come what is right. From my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They're all straight to those who understand. And right to those who find knowledge. Pause button for a moment. Do you hear how wisdom literature is working? It's about an understanding. It's about an intelligence or a knowledge that comes, but there's a specific source to it. This is knowledge and wisdom that is informed by God himself. If you read more of wisdom literature, you find out pretty quickly that this personified wisdom is something that God seems to to be giving to the people. And so what we have in the the letter to Colossians is Paul drawing on that sort of, of Jewish tradition to say... Even the Christ himself is God's wisdom at work. God is working out his wisdom. Um, Verse 12 in Proverbs 8, I, wisdom, live with prudence, and I attain knowledge and discretion. What is discretion? It's the ability to know this is real and this is not. This is something I should do. This is something I should not. I have something, I have some standard by which I can live and compare the other things and not get caught up with the fake stuff, right? That's what this poem about the Christ does. I have this little bit here uh, from a scholar named David Garland. Don't worry, I say scholar, don't be afraid by that. But he talks a little bit about wisdom, and I think you'll begin to see how this functions in Colossians. He says, the qualities ascribed to wisdom in Jewish tradition have influenced the poem's language, this text in Colossians, in in glorifying Christ. 
This tradition regarded wisdom as something more than simply savvy philosophy of life. Please hear that. Jewish wisdom tradition saw wisdom as something more than simply savvy philosophy of life. Jewish writers portrayed the figure of wisdom as the personification of God's will, as the underlying principle of the universe, and as having the same essence of God, though separate from him. I love the way that he says that. This is more than just being savvy like a savvy business person. This is somebody who can tell to the very core of what they're looking at if it's real or if it's not real. It's something that helps you to know exactly what the essence of what you're looking at is. And you'll be able to say, I know that's fake because it isn't even close to this. All right, that's probably enough beating on that horse. I just love how Paul develops this letter and he's going to use that language Uh, to help people see this. Now, I intended to have a a slide or two for you tonight, but honestly, I just got swamped today, so it didn't happen. So I want you to get out a piece of paper, and I want you to have your Bibles open to Colossians, because you're going to make a few notes. And I want you to see how Paul is going to, to use this wisdom idea and this comparison idea to say, here's what's real, here's what's not real. And I want us to look together just for a few minutes at, at Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 23. I want you to have a table. I want you to draw, actually, a little chart. And I want you to have uh, kind of a, a cross shape like this. And on the top left of that, I want you to write Christ. And then on the top right, I want you to write the word philosophy. And you can put that in quotations if you want. So Christ on one side of that and philosophy on the next. And we're going to look through this text, and we're going to, we're going to line out what's being compared, and we're going to weigh these things. And, you, and we'll, just, we'll just see which one weighs up to being real gold. First, let's look. Chapter 2, verses 8 through 23. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, which is in accordance with human tradition, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Do you remember that we saw in the poem? You see how he's jumping now? He's using that language. The fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in the Christ, and now he says it again. In him the whole fullness of, of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. Remember in the poem, he is the head over every ruler and authority, whether they're thrones or lords or... Remember that part? He's just coming right back to it. Verse 11. In him you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. By the way, where it says in my version, spiritual circumcision literally reads a not-done-with-hands circumcision. In other words, this is not a human thing where you have a philosophy that's based on human tradition and not on Christ, and now he's telling you you were circumcised with a circumcision not done by hands. So it's not a human thing. Okay? By putting off of the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, when you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him 
through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Therefore, do not let anyone condemn you in matters of food or drink or of observing festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. These things are only a shadow of what is to come. But the substance, the reality belongs to Christ. I love that. Do not let anyone disqualify you, insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, dwelling on visions, being puffed up without cause by human way of thinking, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows with a growth that is from God. I'll come back to 20 through 23 in just a moment. So what are some things that you see in this text that would kind of help you to to weigh out Christ versus this philosophy? Let's look at a couple. The first one I kind of paused on already. Under the Christ column, you can write that this is the fullness of deity. That it was in Christ that the fullness of deity dwelled. We saw it in the poem or the hymn about the Christ where the Christ is being exalted, and now we see it actually having an effect for, as a standard, really, for the readers. You need to look and ask, is this thing you're looking at, does it really have God in it? That might be a way to ask that question. Is God really behind that? Is he really working in this? We know he's working in and through the Christ. We know he has worked in and through the Christ, and you know by, the, by your own lives. You used to be dead in these sins, and now you're alive. Fullness of deity dwells in the Christ. But under the philosophy, what is the philosophy? What does the philosophy do? It takes captive. Be on guard, he says. See to it, he says in verse 8, that no one takes you captive through empty, uh, through the philosophy and empty deceit. So this, this philosophy, this worldly way of looking at things can only captivate you in the sense of it makes you, it puts you in prison. It can captivate you by getting your attention, but it can captivate you by putting you in prison. It doesn't liberate like the Christ liberates. So Christ is the fullness of deity, but the philosophy, on the other hand, just takes captives. What else does he say? He says that the Christ provides fullness to the believers. He says in verse 9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him. So another thing under the Christ column, which is the good column, it, Christ provides fullness to believers. What does the philosophy supply to believers or to, to people? Empty deceit. So the Christ brings fullness. The, the Christ is fullness and he brings fullness. The philosophy is nothing but something that can put you in prison and gives you just emptiness. There's nothing to it. The Christ, he goes on to say, is one who is the head over every ruler and every authority. That was said in that hymn about the Christ, and it's said in this text. 
Jesus is the one who is the ruler. He is the one who actually has the power and has the authority because it is like wisdom spoken from God. Christ, his work, his authority is given to him by God. Right? What does the philosophy have? Well, in verse 8 again, he says, after he says, beware not to be taken captive by this philosophy and that it's empty deceit, he says it's in accordance to human tradition. So if the Christ is based on wisdom of God and the philosophy is based on the traditions of humans and not the Christ, he even goes so far as to say, and not the Christ, which one of those so far are you kind of thinking you want to be on? Which side do you want to be on? See how, see how this is? You get your, your book of, about rocks out, and you're looking at pyrite, and you're saying, pyrite does, has these characteristics, real gold has this. In this instance, you have Paul saying, look at the Christ, he's the standard. Compare, contrast, and you'll find your way. Jot these few things down. I'll, I need to speed up by just a little bit here. My three hours is almost up. Under the Christ column... It says that we were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision in him. But what does the, the philosophy bring? It's based on the basic principles of the world, not based on Christ. So here you have this spiritual activity that's going on, and it has an impact on our lives. The philosophy can't impact other than uh, captivating because it's based on basic principles of the world. Paul says that we're made alive in Christ, that forgiveness of sin comes in Christ, that Christ does away with earthly rulers and authorities, that Christ is the head of the body, that Christ is the substance, the reality. But the philosophy, it disqualifies people. It's righteousness based on rules. It's Appearance of wisdom. It has the appearance of wisdom, he says. Look at verse 23. Actually, let's look at 20 through 23. If with Christ you die to the basic principles of the world, why do you live as though you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All such regulations refer to things that are going to perish with use. They are simply human commands and teachings. They have the appearance of wisdom in that they promote self uh, imposed piety and humility, severe treatment of the body, but in the end, they have no power to check self-indulgence. So the philosophy has no value. It has no power. It is fool's gold. But my favorite contrast here is that Christ is the substance, the reality, and the philosophy is a shadow. You ever try to catch your shadow? There's nothing to hold on to. But with something with substance, you can hold on to. Now this, by no means, is the entire message of Colossians. This, he wants to have an impact on the, the lives of these believers. He will go on to say, if you can tell the difference between what is real and what is fake, and you can follow the real, then you're going to start to see some things in your life, and he goes on through some applications. And I've got, by my watch, five minutes. So here we go. Is that the five-minute bell? Yes, 
my watch is right. First of all, you can expect transformed behavior. In chapter 2, verses 16 through uh, chapter 3, verse 17, you get kind of a, a list. You get this thing, hey, if you have died with Christ, then why do you still live like you're in the world, like you're living by the, the philosophy of the world, the ideologies and the values of the world? Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, if you've been raised with Christ, then what do you do? Seek things that are above, where Christ is seated. Set your eyes and your heart on things that are above, not on things that are in the earthly realm. Man, do we, have, we struggle with that, don't we? All the time. He goes on to say in chapter 3, verse 5, you need to put to death... And then he lists a number of things, including lying. Let me just jump down there. Three, uh, what did I say? Five. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is of this earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, bad passions, evil passions, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. This is why the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you once lived by, but then you you used to live those, but you you got rid of them. Verse 8, you must get rid of things like anger. Oh, man, now he's gone from preaching to meddling. Wrath, malice, slander, abusive language from your mouth. Don't lie, and so on. You can read through all those things that he wants you to to put off, but then he switches to a positive in, in verse 12. And he starts to tell you what to put on to replace those things. He says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, or gentleness, if you prefer, patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another... Oh, wait. Preaching to meddling. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgive. you have to say that? He says in 3.15, the peace of Christ is to control you. He says that the word of Christ is to dwell among you. In other words, is to live among you and be the arbitrator among you. It isn't the ideology and the values of the world. It's the the word of Christ. He talks about not only transformed behavior, but also transformed relationships. In 3.18 through 4 verse 1-ish, Husbands and wives, he says. Now, this is a text that a lot of us in our contemporary culture don't like. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, you can't stop reading there. Husbands, you love your wives. You know what he's doing there, actually? He's recasting the way that the world uh, viewed things in his day. Because in that day, the husbands didn't always love their wives, and wives didn't always want to submit to their husbands because they just... that. He's saying, you have in Christ a transformed relationship of mutual honoring of one another. And that's a, that's a principle we can bring into our own context. Mutual honor to one another. Respect for one another. That's also a good, I think, a good healthy thing for lasting relationships. I got one minute. Children and parents. Children obey your parents, but parents don't exasperate your children. There's a mutuality about that. Didn't always work that way in the ancient world. Doesn't always work that way in our world. And Paul is saying it should. In Christ, that's the way it should work. 
Slaves and masters. Slaves, be obedient. Masters, don't be the kind of master that's going to just beat on your slaves. You work with each other as if you are working with and for Jesus. And even with outsiders, he says in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, you have, you save just the right words. You use your language in an appropriate way. Transform behavior, transform relationships. All because you're going to live by the standard of Christ and not by this fool's gold of worldly ideologies and values. My time is up. Much love and many blessings to all of you. Thanks for having me.